This morning we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 8, as, as you already know, and we've been studying chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 1 through 7, we've seen how God, through uh, the leading of Nehemiah and the providing of the materials and the man, the woman, and the children power, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God had rebuilt the temple. God had rebuilt the walls. And now God is on the move to rebuild his people. And he does this from Nehemiah 8 through Nehemiah 13. See, God is not only concerned about the safety of his people. He's also concerned about where his people are founded. About the foundation of his very people. Unless we build our lives on a solid foundation in God's word, no walls can protect us when life throws us troubles. So this morning, if you're taking notes, there is one simple main idea. And we're going to be looking at it in this chapter. And that main idea is this. God's word is was used by God to rebuild his people and lead us to spiritual renewal. I'll repeat it again. God uses his word to rebuild our lives and lead us to spiritual renewal. And the way he does this is through the corporate reading of his word. Let's read it together. Verses 1 through 8, which we just read, tell us of a people, God's people, who now the year it's 445 B.C. They've gathered. It's the first day of the seventh month, a month where many festivities occur, festivities that point them to God's faithfulness and to God's redemptive plan for them. So the Israelites, they're done finishing the wall. They've gathered in their homes, but now they leave their homes and they gather together at the square by the water gate. And the Bible tells us here in verse 1 that they gather as one man. And in other words, this is, this is a large body of people. We're not talking about 100 or, or 500. This is the people of Israel that are now living in Jerusalem. They've come together and in oneness, with one voice, with one cry, they desire to hear from God. And in this desire, we see many things flesh out. We see a desire to be established. We see a desire to be renewed. They're standing in front of new walls. And there's a sense of saying, God, we need to, to be established this way. We need a sense of newness. It had been nearly 200 years since they had experienced any kind of spiritual renewal. An enthusiastic worship and obedience to the law of God. As a matter of fact, the last time they had heard of such renewal was under King Josiah. When Josiah found the law of God. 
and there was a complete reformation of the people. Those who were present that day in 445 had only heard of that revival. Not to mention the dark and desperate years, the 70 years of captivity that his people, that God's people had been under. They weren't able to worship freely. They weren't able to worship corporately. Their God. And so now on the first day of the month, the Feast of Trumpets, a day of solemn rest, they gather for the next 10 days with the purpose of being self-examined. So the people gather and they call out for the law of God. And Ezra, Ezra had been waiting for this moment. It was almost like the one next to bat. He, 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 he's, he's excited because for 13 years, Ezra had been studying the law. And not only had he been studying the law, he had been teaching it to God's people as the walls were being rebuilt. And Ezra knew that these scrolls that he had been studying, the word of God, had the power to renew and revive God's people. Ezra knew that change would occur if only the law was brought out and read. And so he believed that the word of God would need to be the centerpiece of their gathering. He knew that the word of God would need to be an authoritative Word, not something that he could muster up himself, but that the word, the way it was placed, the way it was given, needed to have an authoritative position. And the people knew that. As a matter of fact, it tells us in verse 4 and 5 that when Ezra came to read the law, he, he stood on a wooden platform that the people had built. The people had built it. The people knew that the word of God was not only going to be central, but that it needed to be in a place where all could see and all could hear as the scrolls were opened. So it tells us that the scroll was opened in the sight of all the people, and the scroll and Ezra was above them. In other words, the word did have an authoritative position, not only in its place, but it would in the way that it would be presented. The people wanted to come under the word. And so as they looked at it, they awaited to hear from their God. Secondly, Ezra also knew not only that the word needed to have a, an authoritative position, but Ezra knew that the word would need to bring God glory. That it wasn't going to be about himself. It wasn't going to be about the glory of Israel being reestablished. But that it was going to be about God and him only. It tells us in verse 6 that as Ezra opened the book, Ezra blessed the Lord. Ezra prayed. Now, we don't know exactly what Ezra prayed, but apparently this, this, this prayer had to do with, with the fact that this is, 
There's, there's a certain reverence given towards the word of God. And not only reverence, but there's a certain expectation that, that this word will speak into us, that it will give life to its people, and that it was going to come directly from God. And so the people, the people answered, Amen, Amen, after Ezra blessed the Lord and called him great. And they lifted up their hands and, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There was utter reverence. But Ezra also knew that if lives were to be rebuilt, he would need to teach honoring both the word and the people of God by seeking to have God's word give the preaching and God's people understand that preaching. It wasn't just going to be a dictation of the word. He wanted to make sure that people knew what the word said and that they would be able to apply it. Verse 3, Ezra, we read, read the word facing the square before the water gate, and from early morning until midday. <laughs> now, this wasn't a 30-minute message, or maybe 45 minutes that I may go today. This was a Bible conference. <laughs> this was Ezra reading the word and the people saying, we're going to be here for the long haul because we want to hear what God has to say. Ezra invested time on what he knew would bring real change. And he put that at the forefront. He knew that it wasn't going to be God, his, his opinions. It wasn't going to be what the people wanted to hear. It was what the people needed to hear and what God wanted to tell his people that was going to take time in their day. And so he read the word and he let the word do the talking. I like what Martin Luther has said regarding this. He said, I simply taught and I preached the word in my ministry. And yes, I wrote God's word. But otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all. It was the word of God. And Ezra knew again that the word of God had the power to change people's lives. But again, he wasn't just going to read it. Did you notice the names that were there? These are Levites. These are folks that were considered not only students of the word, but teachers of the word. And, and, and they were amongst God's people. And so as Ezra was reading the law of God, Yeshua, verse eight, seven and eight, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, or Hamin, I think he was Jamin. Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita. By the way, we're a, we're a church of grace, so thank you for showing me grace as I butcher some of these names. Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah. The Levites, they, these Levites, the word tells us that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their place. 
and they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The Levites here are doing their role. They understand that the word will do its role. But the Levites understood that they needed to take the law of God that was being read in Hebrew. And first of all, they needed to have it translated in the language of the people, which was Aramaic. You see, the people of God, having been in captivity, many of them had forgotten the language of Hebrew. They had adopted their captor's language when they were in Babylon and under Persia. And so the Levites needed to make sure that they helped interpret the scriptures. By the way, this is why we translate every single Sunday morning the messages that are given here into Spanish. Uh, because we believe that language should not deter someone from understanding scripture and from hearing the gospel. And so the Levites here are taking the word that they're hearing from Ezra and they're translating it. But they're not just translating it, they're, 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 they're helping people understand it and apply it to their lives. So they had a very key role. Now, I think we can pause here and take some application. As I was studying this, the temptation sometimes of every preacher is to make sure that he's preaching to an audience, to a people, and not to an audience of one. See, when we give the Word of God, and we preach the Word of God, or we teach in our small groups, or we do discipleship one-on-one, -on -one, it is the Word of God that we're teaching and we're preaching to really an audience of one. We're really giving Him glory for His Word. We're not twisting things. We're just letting the Word speak for itself. And all we got to do it's share what God has cooked up for his people. So this morning, I'm just a waiter bringing the food to the table that God has cooked for you. But also that you notice that as the word is preached, the Levites, remember, they're, 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 they're helping the people understand the word. Did you notice that an understanding of the scriptures came through a collective Corporate group of people. In other words, we need one another to understand the scriptures. It took community to understand scripture. The temptation sometimes is to, to study the word by ourselves and say, well, I can grow all by myself. I don't need church. I don't need the local church. And while there's a, there's a sliver of truth there where we should study the word, be with the Father one-on-one. -on -one. Christianity, it's about studying and living life together. I think another thing, too, that we can learn here and, and pick up and take with us is that the people were standing underneath the Word. When you and I study the Word, do, do we give it its proper place? Do we come up underneath it? Do we let it pause us from our schedule? Do we 
say no to a call and say, yes, Lord, speak. Or we know we're living underneath the word when it guides our lives. When it shows us how to not only plan and make decisions in our lives, in our careers, it also shows us how to deal with one another, with conflict. It, it, it also teaches us to listen to God's word as we're confronting fears, where our fears are not having the final word over our day, over our emotions, but it's the word of God and his promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not fear, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10. We come up underneath it. and Let it speak to us. And adjust our lives according to it. So the corporate teaching of God's word is monumental to life change. And it's a main piece in the rebuilding of God's people as we see here. But another component God uses to rebuild us and give us spiritual renewal is through the understanding of his word. So it's not just the corporate sharing of it, it's the understanding of it. It's worthwhile to know that the people did not solely understand because the Levites were translating and explaining what Ezra was reading, although, again, that's, that's very important. But the people of God had a certain inclination. And in other words, the people of God didn't, it didn't dawn on them that they have now begun to understand the word of God until later, because boom, all of a sudden they got it. God's people had a heart posture that displayed neediness. And we see it in verse 1. Where the people of God come, and they don't come with a demanding attitude. They come with a needy attitude. They approached the word with what seemed to be eager anticipation because they had faith that God would find, that, that they would find God and his plan would be there in the word for them. But they also received the word with reverence. We see in verse 6 that when the word is, is opened and, 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 and Ezra is, is, is praying, there's a certain reverence towards it. There's, there isn't this flippant attitude. We see a heart posture of not only neediness, but of reverence. And they also listen to the word. And the Bible tells us that they listen to the word with an attentive ear. Like a piano tuner when he is looking to see if a piano is on tune, as he or she pulls out its tools, he listens very carefully to make sure that the pitch is just right for the piano to make its melody. The people come 
with an attentive ear, listening to the word. Expecting again to hear the very breath of God breathe into them. If we're going to understand the word of God and have it change our lives, we need to have the right heart posture. Church, we need to come needy with reverence and with an attentive ear. For God is a God who speaks. Now, this might surprise you, but there, there are times in my life <laughs> when I don't approach the word with the right heart posture, even as a pastor. <laughs> uh, there are times where my heart's in the wrong place, and I look at my phone, and I'll see that uh, I need to watch fantasy football live to make sure that I have the right playoff lined up in week 14. <laughs> Or you know what I mean, is that email you get? Or is that text? Or is that, hey, man, um, I'd love to get together with you uh, at this time, but you know that that time is when you have it with the Word, and it's you and God. Um, sometimes I myself will have my mind wrapped up in a worry, then being under God's Word and letting it rule over my worries. What is it for you? What is it for you that you need to you need to keep an eye out for? That it's keeping you from hearing from God and understanding the word. You know, maybe it's not fantasy football or maybe it's not fears, but maybe it's unconfessed sin. Did you know that unconfessed sin can keep us from understanding the word. Sin has this thing where it, it, it makes our hearts callous. And it makes us believe that our way is really the best way. I don't need to hear from God. Or maybe it's just pride. Where we trust in our own wisdom. And really the reason why we struggle with going to the Word and understanding the Word and, and making time for that, it's because we really, I mean, we, we never want to say this, but it's just pride. We think we can go about our day really the way we should go by our day. Or it could be Condemnation. Could it be a sense of condemnation where, where you've forgotten the grace of God and how his mercies are new every morning depicted through his very words for you? Whatever it is, one of the things that we know is that God speaks through his word and he does it in a way that we could understand and he wants us to understand. He wants to rebuild our lives because he loves to rebuild his people's lives. You know, one of the things I love about this passage is that as we continue reading, we begin to see what happens when God uses his word to reshape and renew his people. And again, if you're taking notes, there's three things that I think are worthwhile taking notes on. Because these are three major markings. These, these, are, these are characteristics of a people who are being rebuilt and renewed by the word. And we read these in verse 9 through 18. 
Uh, actually, read it with me in verses 9, and then we'll go on to 12. It says here, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Why don't we pause there? Because you're probably scratching your head saying, what is going on? <laughs> you know, the word of God is read. People are crying and weeping. There seems to be some kind of a conviction. But then we hear a hush-hush from the Levites. <laughs> and then we hear, go laugh. As a matter of fact, go and eat fatty foods, <laughs> junk food. It's my ice cream. <laughs> Not ice cream. But. but I think one of the things that we can see here, as one of the characteristics of someone or people who are being rebuilt and renewed by the word of God, is that there is a conviction of sin. There is a conviction of sin. It tells us here in verse 9 that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And in verse 11... The Levites, who sought to calm the people, said, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. You see, what was happening is that the people of God had heard for six hours or so the word of God, and they began weeping. And apparently this weeping and grieving was uncontrollable. People were wailing. People were saddened after hearing the law of God, because they had, the scripture tells us, understood it. They had understood it. And they had seen how they had fallen short of God's perfect standard. They had fallen short of the people they should have been and needed to be. One of the commentaries that I was studying through gave this description of this moment, and I think the, the commentator did a good job in doing so. He says, As the law was read and explained to their people, it was as if God himself was speaking to them and reading their heart. They saw themselves as sinners, lawbreakers, more concerned with self than pleasing God. Guilt. Not just feeling guilty, but a realization that sin rendered them liable to God's just punishment now overtook them. And they began to weep. And they wept collectively in sobs of contrition and with a sense of unworthiness. Friend, do you sometimes feel that way? 
when you read God's word? If you do, let me encourage you, don't stop. Don't stop. But hold that thought, because I'll explain why. In the meantime, we often read the word, and sometimes we desire peace, don't we? When really, there should be a war in our souls. Or we want pleasure when we read the scriptures, when what we really need is the healing pain of conviction. Why? Because the Spirit uses conviction to lead us to repentance. We fail to appreciate the dynamic power of the gospel when the first step towards being made whole is sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. So let me encourage you this morning, if you're reading the word and you feel pain, you feel sorrow, you feel discomfort, you feel that there's a war going on inside your soul, please do not stop. Don't stall. Don't balk at a God who wants to reveal with you not only your heart, but his heart as well. God's law will have us on our knees when we understand it. But it doesn't leave us on our knees. It picks us up. And that's the second thing that we see of a marking of people who are being rebuilt and renewed as, a, as God's people is that they're not only convicted of their sin, but they're convicted of God's grace. They're convicted of God's grace. Nehemiah tells the people not to mourn. He says, don't mourn. This day is holy to the Lord. And also the joy of the Lord that's your strength. So go celebrate. Go have good food. Go have good wine. Give to the poor. Be generous. And be festive. Again, we read something like this and we kind of stop, don't we? And we say, well, this kind of doesn't make sense. Because isn't feeling conviction good for our sin? And the answer is yes. And as a matter of fact, we'll read some more into that when Bill preaches next week out of Nehemiah 9. So yes, it's good to be convicted by the word. That day brought about conviction. But that day was not just about conviction. It was also about rejoicing. Rejoicing over God's grace, rejoicing over God's favor. When, 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 when the scriptures tell us that it is the joy of the Lord that is his strength. In other words, it is the knowledge of knowing that God has instilled favor on you. That you are his. And that nothing you have done can take away that status of how he sees you. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. The favor of God upon you as God's people, Israel, is your strength. Let it come over you. It seems to me that Nehemiah was teaching God's people something about God's grace, even as they were reflecting over their sin. There's two things I jotted down. Maybe you can think of more, but I'll just share these two things. That while grieving over sin is biblical, joy, and hear this out, joy is the fruit of, of God's grace believed over our sin. Friend, that's good news. (laughs) That is good news. You know why? Because there are people who think that holiness and joy don't fit together. There's there's some sense of, (laughs) I'm going to pursue God, and so I need to be... I need to just grieve. I need to just be saddened over my sin. Friend, what the gospel reminds us of is that that's only one half of the coin. The other half of the coin is how Jesus overcame your sin and has given you not only righteousness and forgiveness, but victory over it. That's joy. Holiness and joy fit together. After all, joyless, religious, joyless religion fosters and demonstrates unbelief of God's forgiving grace and righteousness. So joy is the fruit of God's grace believed over our sin. But two, I think Nehemiah is also teaching God's people about grace in that the God's word is meant to fill us with joy. To fill us with joy. Jesus taught this. As he's sitting with his disciples, John 15 tells us in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. God himself in the flesh speaks. And what is Jesus speaking of? It's his commandments. It's the word. The teachings and and the fulfillment of all. And he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Jesus' priestly prayer, John 17, these things I speak to, these things I speak in the world. I'm sorry, yes, these things I speak in the world. What What is he speaking of? His word that you may have my joy fulfilled where? In yourselves. So we know we're being convicted of God's grace when we see, yes, our sin, but over our sin we see God's joy overtake our sorrow. Dear brothers and sisters, might God be saying to you today, It's fine that you grieve over sin. Confess it. Let it lead you to repentance. But I want you to celebrate my faithfulness to you, not your faithfulness to me. That'll burden you. That'll break you. 
and that will ultimately enslave you. Celebrate my faithfulness to you, my joy over you. Celebrate my favor upon you, the joy I have over you, because I am your God and you are my people. Lastly, we see a third mark, and that's a renewed dedication for God's word with joyful obedience to it. There's a renewed dedication. This is the third mark for God's word with joyful obedience to it. Verses 13 through 18. We'll just read some of it. But it tells us here that soon after much rejoicing, the following day, the heads of all the families, the men, they gathered around Ezra. And they gathered around Ezra to ask him for daily Bible studies. They, they, they wanted more of the word of God. And so they sit down and they begin reading with Ezra the law of God. And Ezra apparently takes them to a place in the law where it reminds them that they're supposed to be celebrating that month, the seventh month, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, what is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, it's a festival that the Jewish people would celebrate for days on this particular month, the seventh month. And the reason why they would celebrate is because during their celebration, they would remember how God not only brought them up out of Egypt, their forefathers out of Egypt, but really the way God provided for them in the desert for 40 years in spite of their disobedience, in spite of all their demanding and complaining and grumbling. God provided for them food. He provided for them water. He provided for them clothing that wouldn't wear out. He protected them. He guided them. And he gave them his law, his good law a reflection of his heart. And so the people would camp in temporary shelters all around Jerusalem. And they would reflect back to God's faithful promise to their nation in spite of their sin. What tells us here that what the people did as they heard this, the men picked that up and said, we need to tell our families we, we need to tell our kids. We, we need to start gathering branches. And, 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 and according to the law, we know exactly what to look for. Let's go ahead and do that. And it tells us in verse six or 16, and so the people went out and brought them these different kinds of leaves for covering and all and made booths for them, each on his roof and in their courts and in their courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. In other words, they were all over. They were all over there in Jerusalem, camping out. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. We're going to go ahead and close up now, but before we leave this passage, I want to make sure you catch two 
very important things. And one is that the reading of the Word of God not only led people to conviction of sin and to a conviction of grace, but it led them to corporately obey the Word of God. It it led them to want to desire to obey God. Ezra wasn't turning anybody's arm, saying this is what you need to do, get with the program. No, God's word caused the people to desire to live for him as his people. And so they did it with joyful obedience. But two, this festival of booths, and it's not booze, it's booths, or tabernacle, it's very important. And the reason why it's important is because it also pointed to a greater time, to a greater season, to a greater someone, and that is their Messiah. It pointed them to a greater hope and expectation that a king, a Messiah, a Savior would come and that he would make his dwelling among them, that he would come and and overthrow darkness, overthrow wickedness, and that his kingdom would be established. Well, we now look back, and we know who that king is, and that's Jesus Christ, who God, the very word, made flesh, came, and he made his dwelling among us, John 1.14 says. And John tells us that he not only came, but he, he pitched this tent. And it wasn't to just pop in and pop back out, but to reside with us. The word, Jesus Christ, made his dwelling. And Jesus, when he came, roughly 450 years later, after the people in front of Ezra were reading the word 450 years later, as he's walking the streets of Jerusalem, looking to also celebrate the Feast of Booths with God's people, he himself utters these words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And let him come to me and drink. Listen. Listen, if anyone comes to me and drinks, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Friend, this morning, do you need streams of living water? Do you need God to pitch tent in your heart? Because you need to be renewed. Because you need to come underneath the word and say, Lord, your word needs to be ultimate in my life. Do a new work in me. Do you need Jesus to do that? You can come. And he says, if you just believe, if you just have faith that I can do that, Jesus can do it. 
as we move into the Lord's Supper this morning, maybe you've already made that decision. Maybe the Lord has saved you, and you have the utter privilege of being called a son and a daughter of God. And perhaps this morning, you need to be reminded not only by the word, but by what you eat and by what you drink. So I'm going to ask this morning that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, our, ush- our elders come forward. And I'm going to ask too that uh, Jonathan and Jeremy, who are here as elders from Rogers Park Community Church, also join us. During this time, we get to celebrate how Jesus not only made his dwelling among us, but he gave his body. And he gave his body so that we can have life. Has the word of God been enough for you? Knowing that he has tabernacled in your heart, do you need to believe that this morning? Then let's celebrate it together. And I'm going to pray, and, and then we'll pass out the elements. Lord, thank you that you yourself have revealed yourself not only through your word, but through the word, Jesus Christ. Father, we, we acknowledge that many times we come short from seeing our sin. We don't realize, Lord, the, the way that it comes and, and brings this grace on your name. Lord, many times we even see, Lord, the, uh, Lord, the sins of, of our forefathers. Lord, so this morning we come because we, we acknowledge that only in you can we find forgiveness and know that we can receive it. Lord, during this time we come to you, Lord, not only knowing that we've received forgiveness, but that as you've made your dwelling among us, we can also too celebrate this. We can celebrate you and the life you've given us, the way that you've renewed us. And so turn our eyes to you, the builder of our faith.